to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab podcast. This is episode three. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor located in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, who's a physical therapist at Boston PT and Wellness. How's it going, Mike? Great, Mike. How are you? Not bad. We should have really just called this the Mike and Mike show, plus this guy named Derek. <laughs> the, M- the MMD show. Right, MMD. No. No. I'm also joined by Dr. Derek Miles, who's a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Hospital. How's it going, Derek? Good morning. So it's super early for you, 7.30 over there. I'm starting to get used to it now, It's uh, especially since working in PEDS. I'm an evening shift therapist, but, uh, you know, we have things to talk about. Yes. And I have coffee. Boom. We actually, like speaking of things to talk about, have a really important topic today that I'm excited to talk about. Uh, I think you guys are as well. Super prevalent issue, but we're going to spend the next significant amount of time talking about low back pain. Um, This seems to be both a highly prevalent issue, but also somewhat controversial about the narratives that surround it and then the things that we should do to treat it. So we have, as usual, an outline that we're going to go through today, try to cover as much as we can with this. And then we'll link in any articles that we think are pertinent to people reading as it relates to this discussion, uh, especially for those clinicians out there. And so to make sure we have enough time, we're not going to waste too much uh, time chit-chatting. We're just going to kind of dive into this topic. And so I think the first thing we need to do is define what is low back pain. Um, and then for, for the outline, what we have here, if, if you've not read the Lancet 2018 series, that's probably my, at least for me, my go-to personal reference for low back pain at this point. Um, I think both of you guys have read that series by, by now, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I think for all of us, it's a, a pretty good reference. And so I like how they talk about defining low back pain. They start off with this saying that it is a symptom, not a disease. And I'm curious to both of you guys' thoughts, like, why is that important, an important distinction? Well, I think it allows us to see that it's the whole multifactorial thing we like to talk about. Um, if it was just a disease in and of itself, then we're, we're always looking for some type of organic cause. And we know that there are outside contributors to all of that. And, you know, if we say someone has knee pain, we're like, okay, well, what's going on? We go through a diagnosis. And increasingly, we've seen it come into like patellofemoral pain syndrome and different syndromes. And same thing with the shoulder to where the organic side of it hasn't really panned out as much um, outside of a certain subset. And I think we're starting to see that move towards the same with low back pain to where it's not necessarily that something is organically wrong in your low back. And even if so, we know that there's a high rate of healing, but instead it's more of a a symptom of needing to look for what is going wrong at different levels of the system. Yeah. I think it kind of widens the scope and the angle of how we're like looking at how we treat pain and injury. And so it kind of feeds into that, like more of that biopsychosocial view where again, like, like Derek said, you're not looking for this like super specific or, like organic pathophysiological cause since we don't have great evidence to suggest that that w- that is what low back pain is typically um, uh, caused by. So, Yeah, I think both of those are, are great perspectives. I, I like it particularly because it doesn't attach a diagnostic label to it outside of like, oh, you have low back pain for most situations. So we kind of can move away from this labeling system of like, 
oh, you have degenerative disc disease. And that's kind of like part of your identity as we often see with people. So I do think, you know, to you guys' points as well, this is an important distinction. And then the next thing is it's typically defined by location. Um, so like just basic anatomy, you're talking um, in between the area just below the 12th rib and then at the inferior, inferior kind of gluteal fold. That's the area of what we call low back pain. Now, it can be associated with um, either radiculopathy or radicular symptoms. And that time we can have involvement of lower extremities, but that's not an absolute. And interesting enough, I'm sure as we go through this discussion, people will realize is for the most part, you really don't treat those cases all that differently, albeit the time, uh, timeline might be slightly different. And I'm sure we'll get into that discussion. So Derek, you already kind of touched on this a little bit about kind of uh, moving away from these organic diagnoses as it relates to low back pain. And one of the articles we have in here that I like a lot uh, is Lutz 2003, which kind of goes back through the history of how we've examined low back pain. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, so Lutz was is actually a historical piece more than anything else. And it basically shows that as soon as we get a new answer donut, as Dr. Baraki likes to call it, we find a new problem. And Back in the day when we first started getting x-rays, we started being able to visualize facet joints. And we started under the premise that low back pain was caused by facet joints. And there was an introduction of a lot of flexion-based exercises to open up the facet joints. And then later, as we started getting advanced imaging into MRI, then we started seeing a disc. And all of a sudden, we we're like, well, if we have go into extension, we get anterior translation of the disc. This should alleviate low back pain. And then moving forward with that, once we realized that wasn't really the way it is, and I've even seen some papers now showing some posterior translation of the disc with extension, then we started getting fMRI. And all of a sudden, all the pain was in your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and amygdala. And it really, the paper itself offers a broad frame perspective that uh, Lutz's comment was, we have a tendency to prefer organic visible diagnoses as etiologies. And it really gets into, you know, are we, are we exposing ourselves to our own survivorship bias where we're, we're looking for the holes and the problem are instead of the places where we really need to buttress up the system to make it stronger? Yeah, I think that's a, a accurate summation of it. And I, the interesting takeaway from this is like uh, Derek and I have also talked about like there are no, no new ideas. And like when you look at LUTs, they kind of plot out over the past decades of how we've examined this quote unquote problem of low back pain, which is arguably maybe something we, we shouldn't even say is calling it a problem, but we've kind of ebbed and flowed between various things like you were mentioning with the facet joints and then with now the discs, which I think, I think we're probably still very much in this disc era, so to speak. Like we still are looking for that to be the primary issue with people dealing with low back pain. Um, and, and so we just tend to like to attach ourselves to these pathophysiological or pathoanatomical diagnoses. And what, what is the major issue with us doing that? Like what, what happens when we view this, this, uh, issue this way? Well, I think it sets us up for failure because it, it essentially makes it to where like you're fighting yourself. And, you know, if, if we're going to make this to where you can start to heal yourself, um, I think it's. I think it's David Butler who has the danger in me, safety in me uh, acronyms 
but really like we want to provide patients with safety. And if it goes down to, well, your discs are degenerated, your facets are arthritic, you have the spine of a 90 year old. Well, that's not really conveying safety to anyone. It's conveying danger. And whenever there's danger, a lot of times like your first inclination isn't to act. Like you don't feel comfortable moving around. And, you know, we had the papers back in the day that tried to get into like the increased tone in people with low back pain, which were farcical because it was just having someone lift up a five pound weight and basically scaption and saying there was increased service EMG activity. But yeah. if you have someone who's really anxious and really like concerned that moving is going to hurt, they're going to be more rigid. You know, if, if you walk through a haunted house, you're not walking through relaxed, you know, you're about to get scared. So you're, you're really tense the whole time. And, you know, if you're really tense the whole time, as much as we talk about bracing on a barbell, uh, I think it's really hard to have a nice fluid squat or pull. If you're constantly worried that something is going to happen when you squat or when you pull. Yeah, I think all of those are good points. I've heard you use the haunted house example several times. I think that's a phenomenal example. And, it, you know, if I'm interpreting what you're saying, we're basically giving people a lot of things to be fearful of with these diagnostic labels. And hence, that kind of constrains their ability to be active throughout the day because of that fear. Uh, Amato, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I th and I think we take it for granted, too, about like the like the lack of education on the patient side of like what these structures actually are. Like we're, we're comfortable with kind of thinking through like the disc changes and the facet changes and we can kind of rationalize it and maybe de-threaten it, but it might take a long time to kind of unravel that for the patient because they aren't familiar with the anatomy. And then you're having them focus on the anatomy, which I look at as a non-modifiable factor most of the time. So you're like just taking the ball out of their court and you're presenting them with a situation that's like, like Derek said, scary doesn't really make a lot of sense if they don't have a strong background in anatomy and physiology. And then they don't know how to change it other than avoiding like movement that further aggravates this, you know, so-called problem or the, you know, the, the thing that everyone fears like spinal surgery. And I think that's where it ends up being this yeah. kind of this dark path that people get led down. Yeah. I had Go ahead, Derek. I had an interaction about, eight or nine years ago that served as, uh, I think, kind of one of the inflection points where I realized there's more to it than just anatomy to where <clears throat> I was talking to one of my buddies who had had low back pain. He was training with me at the time, and I went off on this, like, huge speech about what I thought was wrong with him, and he just looked at me and he was like, so you're telling me my R19 is out of whack? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about, R19? He was like, you just used a lot of big words that I didn't understand any of them. Let's just talk about what I need to do to fix it right now. So whenever from there on out, we started referring to uh, injuries with big words attached to them as an R19 being out of whack. And I, I think it kind of mm -hmm. takes the sting out of a you know spondylolisthesis, schmorls, node, whatever yeah. polysyllabic word we want to attach to the diagnosis of low back pain. But it makes us sound smart, Derek, and that's that's ultimately all we're here to do is to sound intelligent. Well, it's it's funny that, you know, if you have ever shopped in Lowe's, R19 is actually a type of insulation. So there's a little bit of a uh, metaphor there, I'm sure, about uh, insulating the diagnosis from the prognosis as far as the patient is concerned. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, a few thoughts on, on both of those things. Um I was trying to think back when you were talking to Mato, something kind of popped in my head about this. 
but oh, I remember what it was with self-efficacy. Would you guys say like these, if someone does give this kind of very pathoanatomical or, and we will probably talk about this at some point, pathobiomechanical issue to the patient, to me, it removes their self-efficacy because they're like, well, it's my spine. Like what, what do you want me to do about that? What are you guys' thoughts about that? I think you can, like, I think by presenting patho or by presenting anatomy changes, I think it just needs to be packaged in a way that presents it as, like, this is what is happening, but it's not the entire picture. Because I think that's what ends up being the robbing of the self-efficacy is, like, it, it gets painted as the issue. Like, it's the, this is the factor and the only factor that is causing the situation. Whereas, like, you could flip it and you could have a really um, well-communicative doctor who could say, like, these are the MRI results, but, you know, we know that these are normal changes and that there are other factors that can align with that. Kind of like what we do when we have to de-threaten some of these situations. But yeah, I think on, on their own, they're, they're okay. They're like, we should make them as neutral as possible. But I think that's when it gets flipped into like this negative uh, lens. And then that is when you can start robbing somebody of their self-efficacy. Well, I don't think we have any really good evidence that, we can like truly say that as it comes to low back pain, there, there is the central paper on like the impact of clinician words, but, you know, I think the, the counter group to us, they can say that, you know, you guys don't have evidence to support your stealing the self-efficacy of these people. Cause we get into this with a self-efficacy locus of control conversation all the time. But, you know, it's, there is good evidence for a phenomenon like learned helplessness, where if you constantly tell someone they're not very good at something, all of a sudden they're not very good at something. And I think when it comes down to painting someone as a brittle, fragile human, you're not really likely to do things that are going to increase resiliency there because you're under the impression that anything you try and do is going to break you. Yeah. I think it like, if we were to distill this down, it it comes down to context and how we choose to view this issue. And so if we hinge ourselves, you know, and we've, we've talked at length about these two models, but if we hinge ourselves to the biomedical model, it is very much like you are your disc or you are your facet joint or you are, X, Y, or Z, spinal degenerative disc disease, and then that's how we frame the problem, which means now any subsequent intervention is to design to go after and correct that problem, which can lead to all sorts of unnecessary interventions as we've seen over the years. And I think ultimately that's kind of what like Lutz is getting at is because we prefer these organic diagnoses, all subsequent downstream interventions are trying to correct that. And to what something Amato said earlier is we need to frame this as a much larger picture that sure, we can't we can't negate biology. Like that is your spine. Those are the changes that we're seeing, but it comes down to how we frame it. And it turns out those are perfectly normal changes oftentimes, especially throughout life as we're aging. So maybe we should try to move ourselves away from what we're seeing on imaging and move more towards, to your point, Derek, what do they currently need to do to help themselves get out of this situation? When I think the conversation I have with a lot of my patients and clients isn't necessarily where are we going, it's where do we need to start. Because if you look at achieving a lot of goals or making progress in anything, if you're so focused on like the easy example would be retiring with X amount of dollars, 
it's hard to start investing the small amounts that are going to incrementally add up over time. Whereas if the focus is on, well, this week I need to put $50 in my 401k, that's a much easier thing to look at and be like, okay, this is part of the process. And the process slowly adds up over time. But I think we've been so sold by commercials on TV and Instagram ads and a bunch of idiots that like the goal should be to be pain free. But if you even look at the scale, it's a zero to 10 scale. So we have 10 options for being in pain and one for being out of pain. So just the probability of that alone, the odds of us going straight to zero, like that doesn't work out really well for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point on the, on the pain scale. So um, kind of moving forward a little bit, I think part of this process also to your point, Derek, is to as far as it goes to pain is we probably need to normalize this process a little bit because it would appear that much of society today thinks like, Oh, if I experience pain in any regard, a, I shouldn't experience it. And B what's the fastest possible way I can get myself out of this and, you know, potentially prevent it in the future. And as we're seeing data on the prevalence rate of low back pain, especially the world point prevalence rate, it's quite high. Um, it's at 7.3% in 2015 which if you're like, oh, that doesn't seem like a lot, well, that's a world point prevalence rate. So if you do the math on that, at any given time, you're looking at about 540 million people are also dealing with low back pain. So not to minimize someone's personal experience, but in actuality, a lot of people are having a similar issue with low back pain, but maybe they're experiencing it differently. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, I thought it was interesting because um, I forget I'm pretty sure it was a Lancet paper was talking about its prevalence and and cost and and so on being uh, such a factor was also very in relation to population growth. Um, is that is that what they were um, saying? Population. I'm not sure. I would have to read back to see if because there is a spike, like what we're seeing is an increase in prevalence and that possibly could be due like just intuitively thinking through it through the growth of population. Yeah. And then, and then I think like on top of that, the disability cost being um, like a separate issue because of how we're, how we're trying to deal with it. But the prevalence thing is interesting to me because um, yeah, it gets back to like how you're framing it as either like a, a problem or a, an experience that, just, like you said, not to trivialize it, but like, how do we then go about moving forward? Um, you know, how do we move people along that prospect? Well, uh, essentially, yeah. Go well, ahead. No, I was going to say, I think this is where we can start kind of getting into the diagnosis prognosis conversation, because even though we have that point prevalence out of it, that we also have evidence that, you know, 80% of this resolves on its own, which gives us good comfort to say, like, you're going to get better to our patients. And we have our evidence for the base rate of red flags and what we need to look at there, which I'm sure we'll get into through the course of the podcast. But essentially it is like, does how much does this matter? Is this within my scope of practice? And then we need to start working on what steps we need to take in order to get you towards your goals. But we can't get so focused on the goals that we lose sight of the steps. Yeah. And the steps are ultimately what's important. Like that's what you're going to, how do I say, like, that's what's instilling self-efficacy. That's what's getting you through it are those steps and like you going through that process. But I think that's an important segue into our next section because uh, you mentioned red flags. Is the appropriate versus inappropriate utilization of imaging? 
And we've had a, a fair amount of evidence at this point come out on this topic that um, basically says we're not doing a good job at this. So um, whoever, whichever, Derek or, or Amato, whoever wants to kind of start us off on this, what are some things that we should be concerned with? Because we're, we're talking about this biopsychosocial model that we need to think big picture, but we also can't ignore biology. So clearly there's going to be some instances when we should be concerned with something greater going on here. Well, yeah, know, so the, the main... Go ahead, oh, go Amato. Ahead, go ahead, Amato. Okay. okay, I was going to say, well, the, the, main, yeah, the main things the Lancet paper talks about is the, um, like the metastatic bone cancer, fractures, and then um, cardiac syndrome. But when you, like you said, when you look at the data on this, the prevalence is really, really low, and the, um, especially for cardiac syndrome, like the hallmark signs are pretty apparent. Um, and then that, that is when like imaging comes into play because then you would move on to a different kind of medical treatment than physical therapy, like, or chiropractory, like that, that is where our scope of practice ends and then medical treatment begins in a, in a different form. Well, there was the one review and I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but we can find it, put it in the show notes that talked about our biggest predictor of there being a red flag present was clinical suspicion. So, you know, we start talking about things like fracture and your red flag for that is prior history of fracture, you know, malignancy, prior history of cancer. You know, it's just like the things add up for the low hanging fruit on whether you need to image it. But really like, if you've had reps working with people, then a lot of times you get used to the prognosis of it. And after a, a week or two, if, if things aren't starting to resolve, you're like, hey, we may want to look into this a little bit more. And I think that's the beauty of the rehab side of things is, you know, typical follow up with a physician is six to 12 weeks. Well, if I've seen you five times over the course of that six weeks and by visit four, you're not really progressing. You're like, you know, we may need to look at this a little bit more. And, you know, it's the granularity with which we get to interact with patients. And I think rehab professionals overall have a much more granular picture, which uh, allows us to see some things that should be normal and pick up on things that aren't quite as normal. Whereas if you know that you're not going to see someone for three months, your inclination is to rule out everything bad out of the gate. But you may end up causing some things that are bad by finding some things, finding some R19s in the system, if you will. Yeah. What, uh, what do they call those? Like incidental omas? Yeah. Yeah. So there, I think that um, this discussion can go a couple of ways. And um, I have like a little bit of personal experience with this recently. I sit on the educational committee for my state association and chiropractors, you know, uh, we have direct access and we have imaging rights. And so a lot of them have x-rays on, on site in their office. And for a very long time, unfortunately, the profession has um, gone by this principle of just x-ray everyone that comes in, uh, A, uh, which is a whole other discussion because I think they need to do it for their particular technique, which I strongly disagree with. And then B, uh, they're risk averse. They're worried about a lawsuit, even though like our malpractice insurance is extremely low. And if I'm, I'm planning on pulling the data for the state of Virginia, I'm skeptical that it's a, a high lawsuit rate for uh, lumbar issues and patients that didn't get x-rayed. And so, but I get risk aversion is interesting. Um, I think that if we have the knowledge of when it's appropriate to order imaging and when we should be doing it, 
based on clinical suspicion, that should give you confidence in knowing that the majority of low back pain is going to self-resolve, it's going to be okay, and what are the things I should focus on versus unnecessarily worrying myself as the clinician and then worrying the patient as well. And so we have like the Choosing Wisely campaign that came out a number of years ago at this point that still doesn't appear to be getting adopted very well, even though there's like 20 uh, national organizations at this point from various healthcare sects that are supporting it. Um, and if, if you guys are wanting a reference for that, that'd be um, uh, Lemmer's, I think it was Lemmer, no, uh, Downey 2018, that was saying that our imaging rates are still increasing over the past 21 years at like a 50% increase rate for complex imaging for MRI and CT. It's like we have these educational campaigns out there saying, when should you be doing this and when shouldn't you be doing it? And yet we're completely ignoring them. And I think most of it is because of, of risk aversion. And so to Amato mentioned this, there's only like one uh, uh, to 4% of cases that are dealing with low back pain presentation that actually warrant imaging. And, and this does require, to Derek's point, your ability as a clinician to critically think through this process and have a decent subjective interviewing ability. And so we have like coupled questioning for fracture and for malignancy and for infection and for things like progressive neurological symptoms. And so all of this, if you're, if you're curious, especially if you have the ability to order, order imaging, you need to be aware of these guidelines, but all of them say collectively that you should not be ordering imaging in the initial six weeks of initial consultation. In the initial six weeks, there's no evidence for most situations outside of these one to 4% of cases that you should be ordering imaging. And like, I know I'm kind of going off on a rant here, but this is a super important point because there's a lot of negative downstream effects of unnecessary imaging um, from, you know, the clinician misinterpreting results, uh, talking about the incidentalomas to if the clinician misinterprets it, the patient then misinterprets it. And there's a lot of unnecessary fear mongering. And Derek mentioned earlier, the, the Suchel paper, there's also the Darlow paper that we see where these negative effects kind of come through. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. I know I'm kind of ranting at this point, but this is uh, just because of how it affects the chiropractic profession and an entire profession that has direct access and the ability to order imaging. I think this is a really important topic. Well, I think we've set the expectation that uh, like from even the client side of things that you need imaging. And it's, you know, you'll see like free consultation come in for imaging or, and everybody wants to know yeah. what's wrong, but it, it's more complicated than that. I had a client a few weeks ago that wanted to go get an MRI, even though he was back to running and cycling pain free. I was like, so what's this going to tell you? And he's like, what's well, going to give me the answer to what's going on? And I was like, well, let's play a game real quick. Let's say you have your MRI and you have facet arthropathy at L4, L5. You have a grade two anterior listhesis at L3. And then you have degenerative joint disease at L3, L4 with a Schmorl's node and some modic changes at L1. Did anything I say mean anything to you? And he was like, no. It's like, well, that's what your MRI report may say. So does it really give you the answer? Or are you just waiting on someone else to tell you what's wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and there's so like, there's so many things that could go wrong, like uh, depending on setting and context of, you know, me giving you your imaging results, how I frame those results can be extremely impactful. If I were to say everything you just said, and then I followed it up with, but you know, we have strong evidence that this is pretty normal aging adaptations based on your age range and people readily present with these things and they're asymptomatic. It doesn't, it, that is a very different frame set than, um, I know my father-in-law wouldn't care if I talked about this. 
is he recently had an onset of low back pain, went to a physician, they did uh, imaging, x-ray and MRI, and they gave very similar results that you just gave, but it was from the standpoint, and I quote, if you don't take care of this, you're not going to be able to walk again in the future, which is an extreme statement to make to someone, but also to take those findings and try to predict the future is damn near impossible to say those things. But the negative effects from that type of language are going to be far reaching. It comes back to the utility of what it means in like a healthcare setting. Cause like taking an image of a spine, you can have a lot of uses for that. But like, I think in your like primary care kind of setting, the main utility kind of going back to what Derek said, like setting the expectation, we're doing it to clear red flags. And if it's, clear then it's the report to the patient should more or less be like it's normal kind of like if you were to get like a blood test or like a urine analysis like your lab results came back normal I, and i i think i think that's pretty much it like it, it, it's utility as a look for you know cause and and explaining pato anatomical changes is just i don't think that we haven't we have no evidence to say that that is going to improve outcomes obviously we have evidence to suggest that might even be detrimental but i yeah. think it comes back to like seeing the utility of what the image actually is so that's a super go ahead, go ahead mike i was gonna say that's a super important point that amato just made about outcomes uh, and we do have solid evidence on that at this point that and this is from uh lemmers 2019 that a, it has a negative impact on outcomes, but it also exponentially increased healthcare cost and utilization, meaning that because I've given you that narrative on your MRI, every subsequent intervention is hinged to fixing that. And so we see increased rates of injections, increased rates of surgical interventions, uh, increased visits for rehab professionals even, increased hospitalization, increased med uh, medical utilization. Well, if I'm using more things on you, that naturally is going to increase costs. What were you going to say, Derek? No, I was going to play devil's advocate for a minute because, you know, a lot of the people listening to this are not healthcare practitioners and they're going to be the ones experiencing symptoms. And I think thus far we've talked about centralized low back pain. So my question to you two would be when someone has ridiculous symptoms or colloquially sciatica pain down their leg, when would yeah. that move the needle for you starting to look towards imaging? Based on what I've seen in the evidence thus far, none. Uh, it would have to be where I consulted on the case and they were having radiculopathy or radicular symptoms. And despite intervention and time, it kept getting worse. And then it progressed to things like loss of bowel or bladder movements. Um, then I would start getting a little more concerned with more uh, kind of sinister things going on that I would need to investigate. But even the all of the clinical practice guidelines and the Choosing Wisely campaign consistently state regardless of radicular or radiculopathy accompanying symptoms with low back pain, that is still not a reason to order imaging during the initial six weeks of consult. Oh, I'm with you. I just wanted to hear someone explicitly say it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <'cause then laughs> I know you are. Because <laughs> I, I, I end up, because I get this question a lot from patients too, and I'll use the same thought experiment. I'm, I'm, I'll use the you know example of like, okay, we get the MRI and it shows a disc change it's not going to change our current treatment process unless what Mike had said, they're getting those advanced symptoms of um, like either complete motor loss or bowel and bladder uh, changes. But that is a different scenario that ends up being more of like that medical treatment area. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, to be clear, th 
these cases are unicorn cases for all intents and purposes, but they do still occur. And as clinicians, we need to be aware of like, what's the subjective history I should be taking? What's the clinical physical exam I need to be doing in order to assess the situation accurately and then decide how to move forward? Um, you know, and again, just to reiterate, those are cases of malignancy, which for those, the coupled questioning is a personal history of cancer, not a family history, a personal history of cancer accompanied with things like unintentional weight loss, not, not I decided to cut my calories and lose some weight, completely unintentional weight loss. The next would be a recent history or ongoing history of infection with accompanying fever and sweats. Another one would be a fracture, like Derek mentioned, which would be a history that gives you clinical suspicion to think the person has an acute onset fracture. And those are also a couple of questions with age ranges, like greater than 50 or 70 years old, plus the history that gives you suspicion, like post-motor vehicle accident or a fall from a certain height. And then the next would be like what Amato was mentioning, which are the progressive neurological symptoms that are worsening after consultation or the initial onset of cauda equina syndrome, loss, loss of our bladder function. So outside of those kind of uh, one to 4% of cases, we don't have a lot of evidence to say that imaging needs to be done at all. And then kind of the fifth one that people tend to talk about is going to be axial spondyloarthritis, things like ankylosing spondylitis, uh, co-occurring with things like Crohn's or UC ulcerative colitis, stuff like that, or psoriasis. But even in those scenarios, like that prevalence rate even goes down. Like we're talking 1% or less of cases are dealing with those types of issues. And then usually those cases are co-occurring with a subjective that has a lot of other things like extra articular findings or peripheral findings like arthritis and enthesitis or uveitis. So like, I guess what I'm getting at is you should have your subjective down so well and your physical exam so well that you're able to discern out the cases that you should be worried about for imaging if you're capable of ordering it or for referring out. I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's easy to say, but it still comes down to like getting some of those reps in out of it because, yeah. you know, if I think every clinician listening to this, it, it would concede if you're given a post-operative patient of, let's just say a ladder J and a motto, Mike, have you guys ever worked with a ladder J before? I have not. No, I have not. Okay. So odds are you're going to be more conservative in treating it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's a new yeah. thing, yeah. but, and then, then that gets to your point. Like any, if you're a brand new clinician, especially, and someone comes in with low back pain and they're talking about anterior numbness on bilateral limbs, you're like, oh, oh shit, you know, like what, what do I do with this? You know what I mean? I think that's what you're yeah. getting at. Yeah, well, I'm just, well, even not even that complex. It's just like, what do you do with the person who's had low back pain for three weeks and isn't sleeping through the night? And like, still, like, if you've been a clinician for a decade, like, you've seen some of those. So it's easier to say, or with confidence, like, yeah, dude, this sucks. Like this really sucks, but you're still like highly likely you're going to get better. And whereas, right. you know, you can watch newer clinicians who just haven't had reps and it's just like, well, you know, uh, and as soon as that, uh, comes out, you're digging yourself a yeah. hole. Well, I mean, you've known me from schooling to clinical practice now and having that ability to order imaging. There were plenty of cases in year one and year two where I would see cases and I'm like, oh, I mean, 
I have the ability, should I do this? And that was really what sparked the desire to like figure out what is appropriate versus inappropriate utilization of imaging because you do become risk averse and fearful, both not only like risk averse from I'm going to be sued, but you also care about your patient and you're like, well, if something could go wrong, wouldn't it be better for me to know that there's something underlying that may go wrong here? Well, I think one of the best exercises I undertook as a developing clinician is during my residency year, I would meet with a surgeon, one of the head PM&R physicians, PM&R residents, my mentor, and myself, and we would go through low back cases. And the game was always like, how does this affect our treatment? Okay, this guy has this, this, and yeah. this going on. How does that affect our treatment? And it would always you know, come down to the, well, they need to try conservative care and rehab first. And you're like, okay, so what really matters that we need to expedite out of this? And it kind of changes the frame that you look yeah. at it. And when I came out in 2008, when treatment-based treatment classification was really like the up-and-coming thing in the evidence, and it's how I was trained. And even out of that, if you look at it, it was almost like a joke of like, okay, well, um, it's they don't meet the criteria for manual therapy. Well, they go to stabilization. Well, what do you do once you centralize them? Well, they go to stabilization. Well, after traction, where do they go? Well, they go to stabilization. All right. So basically what you're saying is we just need to get people moving. Let's just – it's – are there intermediary steps that will stop me from getting this person moving immediately? And then the evolution of it came out and started putting in the yellow flags to where it's like starting to screen for things like catastrophizing fear avoidance and, and things that decrease your prognosis. And it almost, well, I would say at this point, it almost has superseded the actual treatment based classification is the front end of working through the beliefs because in order to get you moving, I have to first see what you believe about moving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is a really uh, super important point is the overarching theme here is, is this going to alter prognosis and management? And for the majority of low back pain cases presenting for consultation, no, this isn't going to change anything. Um, and you're going to still need to do the same things. The likely outcome is still very much the same. Although I would argue there's great potential that you could negatively alter the outcomes based off of making the inappropriate utilization of imaging. And so this kind of leads into our next point that overall, the majority of low back pain is nonspecific in nature. And that's not saying that we have no idea what's going on. That's saying that there's nothing underlying that us as clinicians and you as the patient should be concerned with at this time. And that overall, low back pain does follow a natural history. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. What do, you, what do you guys have to add to that? Yeah, I think it comes down to, like, making sure that language doesn't get misconstrued. Because I think you can take nonspecific and being like, what does that mean? You don't, you don't, you don't know what's actually going on. It's less about... It's less about knowing, like, that's, again, like, looking at it as a singular viewpoint, but more as, like, a collection of factors. And I think, like, that's what nonspecific gets at. Um, and I also wonder, like, how much, I think Derek has kind of alluded to this a little bit, but, like, how much the rest of, like, diagnoses go with musculoskeletal pain um, and injuries is, like, you know, we, I think we're finding out more and more that it's hard to pinpoint pathology and tissue 
um, as a singular cause. It, it may it may play an element, but is that the label and diagnosis that you're going to plant your flag on and then have somebody walk out of your office with that new identity? Um, it's like an interesting uh, kind of philosophical viewpoint, I think. Yeah. Uh, Derek, what do you have to add to that? Because I know you and I have both used uh, the term nonspecific before publicly, and it gets a mixed reaction. Like sometimes people are like, oh, okay, there's nothing to worry about. But then other times people are like, well, I really want to know what's wrong with me. Or are you saying it's just all in my head? Well, I try and avoid nonspecific at this point because I kind of hold nonspecific in the same camp as placebo and that like, yeah, it, it's a decent explanation of what's going on, but we've probably come up with a better word. And as we've seen placebo move into contextual factors, uh, I think we'll probably see nonspecific move into like multifactorial or some other word along the way. But I think the bigger point is to try and take the sting out of what's being said to the patient. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, it's non-specific, but you know, I, I hate the, it's all in your head thing because I don't see the difference in the problem being all in your head versus all in your spine. Either way you are your head or you are your spine. So in like, we're quick to say like, oh, well, I have X, Y, and Z going on with my spine. Okay, well, if you're saying it's all there, like I don't see that it's the same argument as saying it's all in your head. Both of them are inherently wrong, and it's an overly reductionist view of what's going on. And yes, there are things that can contribute to increased symptoms on both your head and your spine out of this. That doesn't mean it's nonspecific. It just means there's a lot of stuff going on here that we need to work through. Yeah, I think all of those are solid points. So, you know, realizing that this is, uh, to Derek's word, uh, which I might steal in the future, is multifactorial, that we can kind of move ourselves away from the majority of cases aren't unicorn cases. And so we shouldn't be overly concerned with underlying pathologies. Um, And so with that said, it becomes a question of what should we be doing with the majority of low back pain cases? And the evidence uh, is becoming more and more clear on this, although I think that we tend to use uh, some of these terms that we're about to talk about rather loosely, and we don't really talk about how to actually implement these things, which to Derek's point, we probably need to get practice at these reps and doing it in clinical practice. But the first and foremost isn't going to shock anyone, like the majority of guidelines on this for low back pain and also in general for musculoskeletal pain is education that we should be educating people about low back pain. And I'm curious uh, to you guys' input, what does education mean as it relates to this topic? I would say it has to, uh, Derek's kind of drilled this as like the prognosis of it. I think, I think the education about the prognosis of the, of low back pain is probably the first thing you need to kind of like go through before you start doing anything else. And in this case, the prognosis is that most cases improve with time. And I think even if we can make that case, we hit a big inflection point in what's going on with clients because, you know, how many times do athletes come to us and like, my physician told me to never squat again, or my physician told me that deadlifting's bad for your back, or, you know, if I twist this way, the jelly's going to come out the donut or what other dumb stuff that gets said <laughs> to patients. When it really comes down to like, we, we forget that stress doesn't have a positive or negative, like stress is stress and we need stress in order to adapt. And, you know, you hear the trope of like, well, we just need to be strong. Well, I think too often we forget the second part of the sentence. It's like strong enough to do what you're trying to do. 
And if it really was just like treating low back pain by getting people stronger and being strong was protected, we would never see power lifters hurt their low back, but they're trying to operate up at like the top end of the curve of what they're capable of doing. Whereas, you know, someone who is a retired 65 year old living in Ocala, Florida, who golfs, like they probably don't need the same capacity, but they still need to develop the capacity for what they're trying to do. And the good part about resistance training, and I would argue like you could extrapolate this into like yoga and some of the other stuff that has some low level evidence as well, is like you get to see that you can do things that you couldn't do before. So it's like, well, I went from 65 pounds to 85 pounds on my deadlift. Well, that's awesome. I'm doing something I've never done before. I didn't think I could do that. Well, four weeks ago, I couldn't touch my toes and I'm doing that now. Well, that's great. It's not necessarily like the, what the exercise is specifically doing to the tissue. It's the fact that like you get to see, you can do more than what you think you were capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, all of those are great points. Education, I'm blanking on the name of the paper. Maybe you guys recall, it was an editorial. I think it was by like O'Keefe. Yeah. It really, really, really good. We'll put it in the, the show notes. I highly recommend anyone uh, that wants to read more on how to educate, go read this. It is an editorial, but I think they give really good insight onto doing this because we talk about education, like, oh, we all should be doing it, but then no one really knows how to educate, like actually implement it and teach patients about this stuff, which would be, you know, the natural history, which we've already talked about. Most get really good improvement in pain and disability in the following weeks of onset. And then um, kind of debunking myths to Derek's point about movement and activity and things that they can do while this is regressing back down while being, you know, kind of being active and taking control over the situation for themselves. And then, um, you know, with that said, like, I think also a major point of education is we do know the reoccurrence of low back pain is, is pretty decent. You know, it's about a third of people who develop low back pain will most likely go on and do re-experience it at some point in life again. So part of education maybe should be us, A, normalizing low back pain, but also here's the things that you could do when you do have an onset again, rather than saying, let's just get you out of pain and kick you to the door. If this comes up again, here's what you should do. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, it's kind of like painting um, painting the process as a process and that it's not going to be just a linear, like you're in pain now and then you're going to get out of pain and then that's it. Um, not to like set up the expectation of like you will, you should expect to be back in pain, right. but that if this happens again, one, it's more or less normal. And then two, this is how we can like move forward so that it becomes less of an issue in, in disrupting your life and function. And you can get back to like what makes you, you that's kind of the way I view it. I think there's something to be said for, you know, framing it through a way that the patient can understand uh, a lot of times, like if my patient is an engineer, I'll try and bring it more into that realm, which automatically assumes a Cartesian conversation, but like you can turn it into stochastic systems. Like I'll never forget one time I was talking to a client and like while we were doing the evaluation, he said, so it goes, and which is a Kurt Vonnegut reference. And I was like, Oh, I got this dude. Like it's like, cause I, I knew I had like some way to relate and I could start framing it through like slapstick and like slaughterhouse five and those things. And, and it's meeting the patient where they're at, no matter like where that is. But in that same regard, that also means that you as a clinician have like 
that you're relatable, which sounds like really yeah. counterintuitive, like base level. But like, if you come across as this like huge information asymmetry person, or like, you know, this is the way you need to do it. This is what's going on. Then like the person's not going to relate to you. They may listen to you, but you're not like, as far as affecting long-term change, the likelihood of that happening is going to go down dramatically. Yeah. You've got to find uh, some common ground and, you know, just get to know the person that you're helping, not their spine or their back, but who they are and find some relatability. I know I've heard you say previously, Derek, many times, you know, try to become their friend, quote unquote, at some level. So you can make that connection. And so you can help make behavioral and belief changes for them long term. Amato, do you have anything to add to that? No, yeah, and especially I think, I mean, I, I think all our biases are like working in a little bit more of an athletic population. And I think performance is a great analogy um, or or kind of like a an equal way of looking at uh, that fluctuating process. You know, if you, if you do anything on that higher end performance spectrum, you had to have gone through some troughs and some peaks along the way. Yeah. And kind of understanding that, I think, can, can, is very analogous to rehab. Yeah, oh, I, think, I think it doesn't. Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead, there. No, no, you're good. No, I don't think it necessarily has to be through the performance side of things. Like one of my favorite studies that ever gets referenced is the Ellen Langer study for the uh, hotel employees, where they oh, asked yeah. them about like how physically active they were, and they were experiencing pain with their job and they didn't perceive themselves as being physically active. And like they came in and they were like, well, you realize you walk like 10 times as much as the average person. Like you're picking up weights all day. It just happens to be like bed sheets, shampoo bottles. Some may call that functional training, if you will. And just framing it through that, like all of a sudden they started realizing like, Hey, we are more active. And like some of their pain went down and like, overall their health improved out of it. And it really gets into some of the disposition that you work at things with. And I think it's interesting to talk about like the non-athletic population as far as like sport, but like the good old boy population who, you know, they're farmers, they're down doing things and being active the whole time and sitting there and just being like, well, you just got to be stronger is just stupid to them. Yeah. Like, you yeah, they're like, well, dude, I literally just plowed a field of corn yesterday. But it was interesting being home two weeks ago and talking to a lot of individuals and the like utter distrust they have for the medical system because of how many times they've been told to not do something. And if you tell someone to not do something because their back is going to explode and their life depends on that something, odds are they're going to go do it and they're going to go look for another way. So instead of don't do this, your back's going to explode. It should be like, you know, this may not be the best idea right now. We will get back to it. But these are the steps we should start executing in order to get back to. It. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point, The especially having goal-directed steps for them. Um, so Derek, you mentioned earlier yellow flags. Um, I think we definitely should talk about some of the psychosocial correlates because this does, based on what we're seeing, the totality of evidence at this point, seem to be major contributors to the development of persistent low back pain. Um, whoever wants to kind of go off first, what, what do you think are the important things we as clinicians should be screening for as it relates to this topic for low back pain? Well, if you look at it from a prognosis standpoint, it's 
really the things that always come out are fear, catastrophizing, anxiety, and depression. And I think all of us will be remiss if we weren't at least discussing beliefs with patients. And you can look at your outcome measures like the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire, start back tool, pain catastrophizing scale. There's a hundred of them at this point. But I think you can also just have an honest conversation on the beliefs of a patient. And specific to barbell athletes, I always think it's an interesting conversation about like what is mental versus what is physical. Because I, I think most athletes, especially those who have hurt their low back, getting back into deadlifting, you always hit this like mental block. And it's just some arbitrary number. It never seems to really make sense. But it's like someone turns the gravity up in the room when you have that weight on the bar. And I know it's happened to me before. And it had nothing to do with like the cross-sectional area of could I lift the weight as far as my muscles went. It was completely like the anxiety and fear of like, can I get this weight up off the ground? And if we're not addressing those points and all of a sudden we're like, well, man, you got this. Well, I mean, that doesn't really tell me anything. That's just some, that's the, that's the up cue up, 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 up. And you know, you got this. Like, (laughs) It it doesn't really like help anyone get through the situation. Like you got to be willing to talk it out. And I think that's one of the hard things for clinicians as well as patients is just like talking out beliefs and saying like, this is what I believe. This is why it's there. And if we're not checking for those yellow flags, though, like how do we ever know if the person is anxious? How do we ever know if there may be some situations where they're more fearful of doing things? And it's weird because we're taught this very like pathoanatomical thing, but this is like an emotive experience. And you have to be comfortable talking about some emotions with your patients in order to really make progress out of it. Amato, what do you think? Yeah, it, I would agree with that. And, and like, it, like, how can you kind of enter their space and have them actually and like have like allow them to tell you their story and then pick up on the cues and then like go down those paths because it's all about that like shared dialogue and that narrative. And you're going to learn a lot more about what's actually like what they're actually suffering from. And I, I'm like a broken record on this kind of stuff, but you know, it's not just the shoulder pain. There has to be something else along or the back pain has to be something uh, alongside it. That is the next level deeper or the third level deeper. You know, what is it about the back pain that is, seeking seeking uh, or causing you to seek care because it's, it's not just the pain there's something else alongside that there's a intentionality and an attachment to that pain and for some people it's like you, you just don't know you have to like go down those paths you know for some people it's like i don't want to end up like my dad who had a who had a bad back or you know i i need to walk down the aisle at my for my wedding you know there, there's it, it could literally be limitless because of what makes a person a person and i think you're getting down to like then what are those um, emotive responses that are attached to it? And then you can kind of explore that because the beliefs don't exist in a silo. You can't just like, you can't just like treat the anxiety in a vacuum. That's not like how it works. Yeah. I think it's oftentimes we forget these things are environmentally related or contextually related. And we have to figure out how is this symptom that they're dealing with affecting their life, which does take these conversations 
which I think is like a really great kind of argument for wanting to use passive modalities as it relates to low back pain, because it, it is much easier to just be like, lie on the table, let me do something to you versus sit up and let's have a conversation about some beliefs and thoughts that you have and some fears. I mean, you know, serious human issues that we need to address in order for you to not only get through this current situation, but also to be able to get through any future occurrences if it does happen. Um, and so Derek named off a couple of things that I do think are pertinent topics like kinesiophobia, fear avoidance, behavior of movement and activity, catastrophizing, which would be just uh, consistently worrying about your back and what's wrong with your back. And that kind of is this rumination over the situation and then magnifying the situation like, oh, well, you know, they said I had spinal degenerative disc disease. What if I've been down and I do have something go wrong and I'm paralyzed from it? These very like dramatic increases and in, in worry and what the meaning of pain is and what are the negative things that could happen. And then one really important one that I also think is a big knock against using passive modalities for this issue is learned helplessness. And Derek brought this up earlier, but it's this idea that I'm not within control of the situation. There is something wrong with me and I need someone to fix it for me versus us admitting together, like, yes, you're having this symptom. Let's figure out how you can get yourself out of this. And I'm kind of just this guide helping you along the way. I would say those are the, the two big ones. And then also depression does seem to be something that co-occurs with persistent low back pain that we want to be aware of in case there's something else we need to do for the situation. Do you guys have anything to kind of add to that? No, I, th I think that was a good explanation. So, um, you know, we talk about working through these narratives and I think one of the, when I was looking through Instagram, cause I asked yesterday, you know, send us some questions and we'll get to those definitely here in a second. But one that kept reoccurring was how do I do this? Cause we talk a lot about working through beliefs. And I think the biggest fear from a clinical side uh, standpoint for clinicians is how do I challenge enough and try to alter belief systems, but doing it in a controlled manner in which I don't um, uh, have this kind of backfire effect or have this, this uh, issue where they don't want to work with me anymore because I challenge their belief system too much. Do you guys have any kind of pointers to help people out with that? I think it goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier about trying to find ways to meet the person where they're at and especially having the advantage of having multiple interactions versus it spaced out more. Um, it really is like, finding a way to build a relationship because none of us have ever changed our mind from someone who we didn't like. So step one, if we're really going to talk about changing someone's mind should, should be trying to develop some type of bond out of it. And it's contingent upon like each person because you know, no two of us are the same. And you think about it, like if you're just going up to go meet someone randomly out in public, you're not going to like, open by like, if you come out of the gate and you're like, I'm a vegan CrossFitter atheist, like everyone's already <laughs> turned off. You probably so have like, a t-shirt on that says that. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, but like if you open with that, you're going to put people off. And in the same time, if you open with someone in pain, like, well, we do pain neuroscience education. Well, chances are they're already like backing away from it. Like if you're going to yeah. have the conversation, like <laughs> you don't lead with that. <laughs> you come around to that. Do you guys, because uh, I'm just curious, I know I don't, do you guys actually say like we're going to pain science or pain neuroscience educate you or do those words <laughs> even actually come out of anyone's mouth? Or? 
Um, no. I'm positive. I, I am willing to say that I have never said that to a patient. There may be one or two times where I sarcastically said something referencing exactly what I just said to you guys. But as far as being serious, talking about it, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to put a a high probability that that's never come out of my mouth. Amato. Yeah. I can't say I've said that. (laughs) Yeah. It's at least least explicitly. Yeah. Like we, we talk about pain, but I don't, I don't think it's necessary to be like, I'm going to pain science you. Like it's this like, sword i'm in a wield or something um and i think that sometimes unfortunately is what people hear when we publicly talk about this uh but it's really to their point we can't overstate this uh it's just having conversations with people and it's really tough to give solid guidelines and pointers because to derek's point everyone is an individual and so my narrative is going to get adapted and molded to their situation and who they are and, and what they're dealing with Amado, do you have anything to add that may provide guidance for people for implementing these conversations? Yeah, I think that first crucial step of like connecting to the person is obviously integral. But then like and then after that, I I I make sure to at least validate the person's beliefs. Um, like I'm not coming out of the gate and knocking them down because just by definition, if you believe something, you believe it because you think it's right. Um you know, you don't, you can't, it's hard to have, I don't, I don't think you can, I don't think, I don't think you can have like a, f- a belief that you think is wrong and then hold on to it. So they have reasons for thinking the way they're thinking. And so validating that, I think kind of sets up that trust and that yeah. like that further connection. And then from there you can explore, you know, what about that belief um, maybe needs to be reframed or can it kind of maybe coexist with a, another framework that can get them to move forward. It, it's hard because it comes down to the specifics of the person and getting those reps in, but I, I do think you have to validate them in some fashion first. Yeah. And I think getting the reps in is, is huge. I think it took me a while to slow myself down, stop being like, Oh, let's figure out how to fix this situation and start listening to the person and having conversation with them. And I think especially like if you work in a busy practice, that's really difficult to slow yourself down and take a couple minutes and just have a conversation with someone. But I think it's really important that we do that. This kind of leads into my next question I have for this topic. And we've talked a lot about education so far and a little bit about uh, activity and movement. And I definitely sit in the camp that I think for some cases, education may be enough. And I've often done that in clinical practice where I consult on the case, I educate, we get a game plan and I kind of send them on their way and they're, and they're fine. And maybe I follow up just to check in later. But when should we consider regular uh, kind of touch points with the patient or what I would call like goal-directed activity interventions guided by a clinician? Is there a way to, to, to distill out what cases need more attention versus others? I believe there, I know this wasn't attached until like the pre-reading, but when they've updated the treatment-based classification approach, there's a subgroup that has that kind of reassurance and um, education to resume activity. Um, And then I'm pretty sure it's kind of based on a timeline scenario where if the individual is not where they want to be at and they feel like they don't have the assets and structure to um, return to that activity or role, then I think that would be an appropriate uh, position to then help them and guide the process of getting them 
to that goal directed plan as I, as you were saying like if they if they just don't have the uh the ability to kind of take them to that point there um sorry can you repeat the question guys jumping on me Um, I was saying, like, we've talked a lot about education, and I do think there's a subset of people that respond really well to research and education, and then I don't really have to follow up with them with a lot of touch points afterwards. But there also does seem to be a subset that needs more attention and more guidance throughout the process. Have you figured out a way to kind of decide this person probably can just get educated with the consultation and then they're good to go, or this person probably needs a lot more of my attention. Well, I think the easy answer to this is there is some evidence for some outcome measures like the start back tool that identify those that are at a lower risk of converting into chronic low back pain. But in the same regard, I think a lot of it is literally asking the client, like, do you yeah. feel comfortable going out and doing this on your own? Well, if the answer is yes, then like that's a pretty easy one to figure out what's going on. But it's still like giving them the understanding of like, listen, I'm here if you have questions. Like it doesn't need to be like this is a black white. I'm done with you today. I'm filling out the discharge paperwork. It's like, yeah, you know, you got this. You seem to have an understanding of the plan. Let's see if you can go execute it. And if we need to tweak something, let me know. And then there are others where you know okay, well, what do you think about this? And it's like, well, I think I need to get some help on this. And then, you know, then you start having conversations about frequency and other ones. I I think you can start picking up out of the gate that there's going to be a lot that you have to work through. And, you know, if someone comes in and they have prior beliefs about it being their degenerative disc and their Schmorl's node and, their QL is tight and they need to have adhesions relieved. I'm like, I'm not getting that in one visit. Like there, there's some stuff we're going to have to work on there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much how I do it is just through our conversations and me asking you questions like how confident do you feel like you can go on and return to activity and do the things that you want to be able to do. That kind of tells me how much time, you know, we're going to have to probably spend together and that's not saying like, cause I, I really hate this kind of stuff. And it's pretty prevalent in the Cairo world is like, well, I'll see you three times a week for the next six weeks and then you'll be good to go. It's not saying that at all. To Derek's point is we very much should let the patient kind of guide this path. And while working with them, figure out when do they feel comfortable going on and do things. And sometimes that requires a little bit of nudging by the clinician to, to say, Hey, you've got this, like you can go on and do this. You don't need me as much. Or maybe we need to spend a little bit more time together working through some of these narratives and getting your confidence back up. Um, So it's very individualistic, but I think there are things you could be on the lookout for, for their belief systems that they're telling you about, whether they have high kinesiophobia, whether they're having uh, catastrophic thoughts, if they're very anxious about the situation. Those kind of things can tell you how should I uh, frame up my frequency of visits and stuff like that. Do you guys have anything else to add to that before we transition to all of our favorite topic, guruism and low back pain? Uh, I'm ready for it. Let's, let's do it. Go into the deep end all of the right. BS. All right. Let's make sure I can keep my blood pressure down this, this uh, segment. So a lot of the questions came up from Instagram about this topic, so I thought it was important to put it in. Uh, guruism and low back pain is basically getting at We've talked about all of the medical issues that may arise as very unicorn cases that we should be worried about. 
but there definitely exists in the world of low back pain, a lot of people who think they have it figured out and they're narrow framing the situation to this, this one weird issue with your low back. And if we can just fix that, all of it's going to go away. And so I've heard throughout the years, all kinds of stuff. And I'm curious to what you guys have heard as well, but from, um, I have a tight psoas or my QL is not firing on one side, or I have pelvic asymmetry, or I have a leg length discrepancy. Um, I have, I don't know, my diaphragm's not working the way I need it to work. I don't, I don't know how we can go through each of these, but maybe we can kind of attack it collectively. What do you, what do you guys think is the best approach to this? Well, I think there's just a heuristic we tend to see, and it's like pick something that has more than eight letters. It's either under or overactive, and then there has to be an intervention. There rarely is any advice that you're going to get better on your own. It's you need this clinician with his method that's a registered trademark in order to fix you. And then, you know, it, it's almost like we've developed this weird multi-level marketing scheme within the rehab professions of like we get Mount Guru and underneath Mount Guru is um, Con Ed classes being sold to people. And if you don't have these letters, they're, they're like, you know, Boy Scout badges. It's like, I have the PRI badge. I have the DNS badge. And until you've accumulated every letter in the alphabet, you're not, you know, you haven't hit your final form yet. And right. with any of these, <laughs> you hear the trope of like, well, the evidence is 10 years behind clinical practice, which is hilarious because we actually have evidence saying it's the other way around by 17 years. And if, you know, I keep getting in a fight with uh, a certain guru who has his system that he takes on his web pages as being like used by all these professional athletic teams. And his thing is like, well, research costs money. I'm like, well, if you're putting those many pro or that many professional sports teams up on your webpage, somebody's paying you, dude, you would think you would want to know like if what you're doing is working. And yeah. all of this stuff just comes back to like, you know, if you're selling your system, we need to figure out if you're or actually, you need to figure out if your system works. But one thing I think physical therapy has done a phenomenal job of over the past 15, 20 years is just because we have a lot of early adopters, we also have, we're, we're quicker to get to the research side of things. So if you look at it back in the early 2000s when PT decided they wanted to do manipulations, well, you know, we were fought over that. And then we got the right to it and we studied it and we found out that most of that's nonspecific and more related to contextual factors than anything that's occurring in the spine itself. And then you saw the kinesio taping rage and, you know, everyone was like, oh, if we wrap our athlete like a Christmas present, we're facilitating stuff. And then the evidence started coming out and saying, well, this doesn't really work the way we think it does. And it doesn't really work at all if we're being honest. And now we're going through the dry needling phase and, you know, it's PT seems to want to like be every other profession, but itself because it can't determine what itself is. But the kind of fun part about it is if there's one thing we do seem to be good at, it's like allocating the resources to figuring out if things are actually evidence-based. And as we keep taking uh, parts from other professions, it keeps coming out again and again, that most of this stuff is all just BS to begin with. Amato, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, if, if I had to take like a large, like swipe at in the entire like 
thought of what guruism is, it, it kind of comes back to our last talk about like this uh, epistemic responsibility of like you, sh- you should obviously be able to learn from people, especially people who have been around for a little while. Um, but I think those people need to kind of get themselves out of the way and you should be learning how to think, not what to think. And we've, we've said this before. And so like a lot of these guru systems or these kind of like linear process kind of, you know, solutions, it's all comes back to like, this is what to think. This is what to look for. This is what to kind of solve where you're not expanding that kind of open-ended critical thinking process. And I, none of these things that come up, seem to allude to that at all it's usually just like this is the way and now if you learn it at a deeper level you will get better results rather than trying to like expand how to think about it I think, yeah i feel like go ahead Derek. i think anytime you see the registered trademark <laughs> sign that should be an immediate red flag <laughs> because i was about to say the same yeah <laughs> that means the person has spent more time trying to make money off of it than trying to actually figure out if it works and to my knowledge, I, I can't think of one that has the registered trademark behind it as a system that has good evidential support to it. And then we start getting into like some of the semantics nuance of like, it's not cupping, it's myofascial decompression, even though your website is cuptherapy.com. Like it's just, there's so many like mental gymnastics. Like if we want to talk about improving mobility, like the individuals pushing this stuff have a level of mental gymnastics that I guarantee you could perform at the Olympic level. Like it's how many different ways can I dance around the problem, but never stick the dismount because I don't want to know if it actually works. I mean, I've I've said previously and written this that uh, if you've ever seen the show Mad Men, most of the rehab professionals' ability to market would rival Mad Men's best person in the entire show for marketing abilities. It is uh, mind-blowing. And then when you find yourself in conversations with these people, it is mental gymnastics because they can literally just dance around it or come up with new names or say new things that try to explain why their method is the method. But then you go to look at data and there's either nothing or the data is contradictory or if there is any data that supports it, it's so low quality, but yet they wave it around like this is the greatest thing ever. I've got science. It proves it. And then you look at the methods section. And you're like, this is crap. Like this doesn't support anything like this is a, you shouldn't even be trying to use that. So I, I guess like how do we empower the consumer to realize, hey, these are the things you should watch for. And we've already mentioned, you know, trademark registered. Uh, but what are some other things? Uh, the first thing that would come to my mind is super reductionist explanations for a complex problem. But what, do, what are you guys' thoughts about that? Um, I think anybody who attributes it, well, it, I'll even back up here. I would say by and large, if it is a self-named system, that should be a red flag. Or, you know, it has some esoteric... Japanese dance system related to it as far as what it's going to name itself. And it it seems to be, we are more concerned and it's really funny that, you know, most of this treatment of low back comes or low back pain, the conversations revolved around education. Whereas if you look at what's being sent out to the public as education or continuing education, it's mostly this, like, here's this one weird trick. And like, Everything, 
I, I would be willing to concede that the large amount of con ed stuff out there is lacks any type of real good evidence base. And we start seeing systems come around and whenever we start seeing a new system, it's like, here we go again. And, you know, if you look at DNS, it's not very far from PNF. Um, you know, all this stuff has been around before and it's just, you pick a new three letter acronym the second time. Yeah. I would say that it's difficult. There's part of me that wants to believe people are genuinely trying to help, but there's another part of me that says people want to make money and systems are profitable because it builds a brand. And then I, I started calling continue education conned Ed, because that, that literally what is what it feels like sometimes is you're just conning people into believing your method and it makes you a lot of money. And then, you know, the clinician goes out into the world and thinks that that is the thing they need to do to help with low back pain. And the really, really tough part about this conversation is people tend to just get better. And then we attribute that getting better to this method that you utilize, which builds this anecdotal experience and evidence. And then it sells even more, uh, which is a whole nother conversation in and of itself. Amato, what do you what do you have to add as far as like helping arm consumers against some of the silly BS? It's hard. I, I mean, it's it's super challenging. And I think from a consumer based standpoint, I think you just have to question, um, like what you're looking for and like, and then from that, like, what are the venues you're looking towards? I I just don't think like, I mean, if, if most of these people are getting their information from social media and I, and I know that we have social media accounts and that we're part, we're a part of it, it, it just seems like the, uh, the ceiling is pretty low and I, I just have a hard time. Um, recommending much of anything uh, because there's going to be some there's going to be some other motive going on in terms of like either making money or gaining followers and again like I'm being a little bit um, contradictory because we we all kind of play in the game but we have like I th- yeah we have to not to cut you off like I think we have no choice at this point but to be in the game you know what I mean yeah and i think i think one of the things for me and i I don't think this is a a complete um like way out of it but looking for authenticity and then uh, like humility and having people being able to be questioned and provide answers and like change their mind and provide evidence like if you're seeing that from the either the group or the individual then at least you're like able to enter a space where there's some ambiguity, uncertainty, and then that way it's not being sold as like, this is the black and white solution to the universe. Cause if I, I think people have a pretty good sense of like when people are being authentic versus being like a, like kind of sleazy salesman. Yeah. I would hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Like humility. And to me, that would also mean the ability to say things like, I don't know, you know, we don't have evidence on that, or that's a really good question. Stuff like that. Because people have other interactions with like other people in their lives who you know where it's like going to the mechanic again. Not that we're, not that we're mechanics, but like you know you've had instances where you trust somebody's knowledge base to kind of give you information, and you you don't have to know exactly that entire subject. But I think people have like that kind of innate like something else is going on here, or I'm not fully trusting in this and like kind of listening to that and further questioning. And then upon the further questioning, you should probably see things either solidify or fall apart. Okay. 
So I think like um, a good way to frame this up as well will be to answer some of these questions. So I just want to take about the last 10 minutes or so to kind of do a couple of questions from Instagram that we got. We actually got some, uh, we got a ton. There's no way we could, it would be a whole other podcast just to cover all of them. But let's start off with um, this one. This is a good one that I hear a lot. What does science tell us about the effect of different sleeping positions and low back pain? This is from an Instagram person that I now really like their name, which is Ron Swanson, Superstash. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys think about that question? There is no good evidence that a certain sleeping position is better for your spine. Um, I, I think here we start forgetting that most of our grandparents slept on, you know, hay bales and on the ground. And, you know, it, it, we haven't always had these luxurious mattresses that propose to do all kinds of crazy things to us. And if you look at the evidence for it, like th there isn't any best way to sleep and putting a pillow between your legs to get the check mark on Instagram doesn't correlate at all hmm. with the experience of low back pain. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, I don't think we have any evidence to say a particular way of sleeping or a particular mattress uh, is something that we should be doing. Uh, Amato, do you have anything to add to that? No, that's pretty much it. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> next question is, how do you know when to suck it up and train as programmed versus modify or take a deload? This is from Pull Sumo Taste the Rainbow. I think that's actually a really good question. It, it is. And I, I feel like we... And even like in the forum on the on Barbara Medicine, I feel like this is a common kind of situation. Like, should I continue or should I change? And um, I think it's individually based, right? Like, it kind of comes back to like, um, are you comfortable with the symptoms that you're feeling, and are they tolerable from a performance standpoint, but also like afterwards, like um, post training. And if they're tolerable and you feel like your performance is still at least staying the same, if not increasing, I would say carry on. But if you're not comfortable with that, um, then there really isn't a downside to modifying either. Like I think, uh, you know, shaving off some intensity or changing the variations or changing the position can, be, it can always be looked at as like a short term thing. And then with the goal of getting back to what your goals are. And that can be that can be for anything. It could be for running. It could be for life functional activities. It doesn't have to be barbell lifting. But I, I think it's person to person, and I don't think it's like a hard thing that you need to plant your flag on and then like stick to it for you know three months. It can be a week to week kind of approach. Derek, what do you think? Um, I'm not a big fan of the suck it up and train as program vernacular is because there is no shame in modifying or taking a deload. And I, I think too often we fall trapped to our own machismo of like, well, I can just grind it out. And I, I think sometimes the, what are you going to do? Not train like the sentence stops there. It's not, what are you going to do? Not train as programmed. Like you're still getting out and doing something and there's no shame in that. And occasionally that's what needs to happen. But the more we sit there and just keep committing to doing something that's beyond our reach because we can suck it up. I mean, that's the turning an eight into a nine or turning a nine into a 10. Like it's not sucking it up. It's being honest with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with both of you guys. And I, I think the, 
to frame this is, is an idea that this is just a process. Like I rather talk to people 20 years down the road and they're still being physically active and working towards their goals and doing the things they want to do in life versus they just keep trying to push through, push through. And it gets to the point where then the activity that they're trying to work at is no longer enjoyable. It becomes this hassle just to go into the gym and do things. And we just stop wanting to do it here because we've lost interest or we're tired of feeling a certain way. So I think really just trying to frame this from, we all have to make changes in programming and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's perfectly acceptable. And, you know, it's a, it's a long-term process. It's not a week to week, month to month, year to year. It's, it's decades. You know, this is something we hope everyone keeps doing throughout life. So uh, the next one would be, uh, what does popping and crunching sounds when I move my low back mean? This is from Bangarang Barbell. It means you're human. I like that. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. yeah there doesn't mean anything bad. We all click pop crunch and it's not indicative of anything bad going on. It's, it's a welcome to the party thing. It's all of us have our own little nuances. It's just a lot of times we don't pay attention to the little sounds we make until we start experiencing some pain. Then every little thing becomes weird. Yeah. I think once the symptoms are a part of the, you know, the equation, we try to assign the popping to the symptoms and we try to have these like, you know, false correlation findings type things. Amada, do you have anything? No. Yeah. I just try to make it like it's part of a normal process and you probably don't notice it when it's happening, when you're not in pain. So it may just be one of those, you know, finding that this doesn't hold a lot of water when you uh, look at it in terms of pain and function. So next question is, is a small twist on the ascent of the squat related to weak low back or glute medius to stabilize? This is from Van Hannen. Oh, I wish I had my biomechanist on the podcast right now. Yeah, the answer, the easy answer to that is no. And all of this stuff is going to be multifactorial to get back into it. And sometimes you just have a habit, as it were. There is evidence like long-term wise that like certain things can contribute to a little bit of variance in squat. Um, A weak quad is actually one of the big ones, but really if you look at the variability of people squatting like person to person with whatever history they have, there is a high, high, high prevalence of variability. And to say like, I mean, we first, and God, I don't want to go down this road. We first have to talk about what even constitutes a weak low back. Like if you're going to call it weak, like how are you going to quantify that? And like, could it be a rate limiting step in some of the performance? Possibly. Is it weak? Odds are, if you're squatting, you're stronger than the average Joe out of the gate. Yeah, it it almost gets at you know what is normal when it comes to biomechanics, and it, it's so individualistic that it's extremely difficult. I I don't even know like because I'm thinking through this like would I address this if the person's not having symptoms and it is their quote unquote normal and objectively they're still performing well and improving. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna draw attention to it. It's, it's just, oh, that's how they move, and we just move on. Amato, what do you think? Yeah, and, and again, like, we don't, we don't, I don't want to go down this path either, but it's kind of looking at movement and how how you think about how movement happens. And if you're thinking about it in terms of weak versus strong individual muscles, I think that doesn't take you very far. 
when you, if you look at it in more of a global perspective of how like movement can be a self-organizing kind of dynamic systems model, it, but that is beyond the topic of this uh, conversation, but that move the, the end result of a movement is a much, is much more than, uh, you know, weakness versus stabilizing versus uh, strength. It just, it, it goes beyond that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, uh, someone asked us to discuss the hypotheses from Dr. John Sarno and how, if at all, they comport with, and then it kind of cuts it off. Unfortunately, it only lets you say so much on these questions, but I'm imagining either with our approach or with what the evidence is saying. So my understanding of Sarno is relatively rudimentary, so I'm going to concede that out of the gate. But a lot of it is predicated on how emotions influence pain, which I can get down with. But in the same regard to say it's only emotions and if you deal with your emotions, it's going to alleviate all pain, that's not substantiated either. It gets back to like, this being multifactorial and trying to nail it down to just one thing, whether it be a pathology in the spine or your inability to cope with anger, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. I'm um, very basic with my knowledge with this person. When I was first, uh, someone said something to me about them maybe a year or so ago. And I was like, Oh, let me go read about this. I've not read their books. So I'll, I'll say that out of the gate as well. But my understanding is it almost swings the pendulum all the way into psychology and emotion and prior traumatic experiences even. And I think that that, again, would not be what we're wanting to do. We're not trying to reduce it down to this one weird issue that if we just address this, everything's going to be fine. It is multifactorial. Amato, are you familiar with Serrano's work? I've been told to to read his work, and I just haven't gotten around to it. but I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it for me, it kind of gets back to not separating the mind from the body. And I think sometimes this stuff can get uh, dualistic. So that yeah. would be my only um, trepidation would be kind of staying away from separating the mind from the body. So this uh, next one I know uh, can be very uh, controversial for people. And I regularly find myself in this discussion with uh, supporters of this methodology but someone asked, in range loading or McKinsey method, why it works, what the literature says, if you use it in practice. This is from Geronimo 10. Whoever wants to kick it off with that one. Either one of us are very excited about this. Um, why it works, because it's movement. I mean, if, you know, in the same regard as we were talking earlier about if you add, in fact, I I think I actually said this earlier, um, adding some weight to a bar is no different than going to yoga and adding some range to what you're doing or some skill. So getting to end range is just like you're slowly increasing what you're tolerable to. There's nothing special about it. And like the literature would say, there's nothing special about it as far as like biomechanical going on. It's, it's exposure. Yeah. I think my biggest concern for the McKinsey method is just that, that it's somebody's name attached to this method that you have to go get certified with. And I don't know how it is currently because I just don't keep up with it, but I know previously it seemed very hinged to biomechanical factors that I don't think we have strong evidence to support those narratives. But if you were to just say to me, well, I want to get someone who's experiencing symptoms when they flex forward to touch their, uh, to put on their shoes, 
I want to get them doing more of that movement. I'm like, that makes sense to me. But I don't know. My concern is when we go get certified in this method, now every time we view a person with low back pain, we're trying to fit them into that assessment or that protocol. That's just not how it works. And the evidence doesn't seem supportive of that either. Um, and so I, I tend to shy far away from this, albeit I regularly find people who are uh, just very, very avid supporters of this methodology. Well, I think what it comes down to is a system beats no system. And McKinsey is a system. And therefore, like it, it's going to work better than nothing. But just because it works better than nothing doesn't mean that it works well. Or it is the something you need to be doing. Yeah. And I, I actually have a good friend and colleague who is pretty, I think, I don't know how far he's gotten with the certifications, but he's well-versed in it. And we're on pretty much the same page when it comes to a lot of the the nuances of, you know, biopsychosocial and um, the phenomenological look at stuff. But, um, you know, and he would say, like, the the people in the know reject a lot of the biomechanical and derangement uh the uh, like foundation of the work, but I think we've even had like a further conversation, which again might be beyond this podcast of like the role of symptom modification and like the symptom modification, like should it play a uh, primary role in your care? Um, I think we kind of overlooked even that first assumption of like, you know, if, if McKenzie has a role of modifying symptoms immediately, is that a, is that a good or bad thing? Um, not to paint it super black and white, but like if you're starting at that standpoint, I think you're assuming that symptom modification is a, is a necessary ingredient to, uh, you know, early rehab. Yeah. And, 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 you know, almost anything can modify symptoms. It depends on how we frame it and context and setting expectations and conditioning. And I, yeah. I, you know, for me personally, and the evidence that I've looked at on McKinsey, it's not overwhelming. It's typically not of great quality, and it doesn't demonstrate it any more efficacious than any other intervention to Derek's point of doing something being better than nothing. But I don't think we need to hinge ourselves to it, and I wouldn't advise clinicians to go get certified in it. The next question is, Does oh, this is one of my favorites as well. Does adding body weight make the spine, quote unquote, more stable as Ripito asserts in his latest video? This is from, uh, I want to say this is Will Davies Fitness. No, that's all the mental effort I'm going to give to that question. (laughs) 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 Yes, the, the answer is no, gaining weight is not this one weird trick to fix your back. Um, neither is to make some people go on a frenzy, neither is deadlifting or squatting or resistance training. Although there is some utilization for it based on the individual's goals, I could see advocacy for it. You're not in pain because you're not deadlifting or squatting. Both of those are just, they operate from a completely false premise. And I don't know that we need to go any farther unless Amato wants to talk more about it. No, I've, no. No. Okay. <laughs> I perfectly summed it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, this is a good one as well, and we're going we're gonna to wrap it up here with just a couple more. What happens when low back pain doesn't get better after years of pain? This is from Blake uh, Los Angel- Angeles. Sorry, sorry, Blake Los Angeles. I, this question is we could do a whole episode on. Yeah. And I think the the – slow answer to it is you need to go talk to somebody 
it, it's not anything you're doing wrong. It, there's probably some things that you need to work through with someone in, in order to help you see the forest for the trees and, and start you down the path to getting better. And I think a lot of times with this, a contributory factor can be looking for answers online where we know the heterogeneity is all over the place. And if you start doing that, all that happens is we start getting just a host of different beliefs. And in instances like this, especially for chronic pain, I, I, I don't know that I, I really think that getting online is the best way of addressing it because you can get some validation, but we're not sure that the beliefs being validated are the proper ones. Finding someone in person that can help you and talk through the situation with you, I, I think is way more integral and someone that you trust um, just because there's way more going on to it than just any type of structural thing or it being all in your head or, you know, whatever we want to assign it to. And until an individual like this can find someone whom they trust and whom they're going to work with to get better and concede it's not an easy fix, they're going to be fighting an uphill battle and it, it sucks. And I, I think the concession that it does sucks is really a step to moving forward. Yeah. Like everyone, everyone at some point in, your, in their life is going to need some kind of guidance through a difficult time. Like it, you just can't do it all on your own. And then finding that right person who can help you or that right group who can help you is challenging. But kind of like what Derek said at the end is someone you can trust, someone who's willing to work with you and kind of meet you where you're at and kind of see you as a person and like, you know, kind of can can form that team with you and take you along the path rather than trying to sell you a new solution that's going to be a quick fix or something. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that if you're dealing with it for years on end, uh, finding someone that you trust and you can work with in person is probably going to be a really good idea to help you work through this process and figure out for you as the individual what's going on and how best they can help you kind of work through this process and give you coping mechanisms. Um, but I, I will say that it's not just because you're experiencing it persistently throughout the years, it doesn't make you abnormal. And I think that's important to state here. Um, the next one would be, we've, we've really already talked, we've really already talked about this one, but I think we would be doing this a disjustice if we didn't touch on this just briefly, exploring different schools of thought around low back pain, specifically McGill, whoever wants to go first, go. A well, system I think we works probably... better than no system. Yeah. Yeah. No system is better than another, according to the literature right now. But having some heuristic with which to operate in is always going to be having no heuristic with which to operate in. Yeah. And I can see how, like, I can see how a system like McGill has helped people because um, it, it does, it, it can give you a little bit of that self ownership of doing something for yourself. But, like, Derek said it, it doesn't make it inherently better than something else. It's just that it's a step in a direction, but it's not the, uh, it's not the end all be all. Yeah. And I think my only concern with McGill or one of my concerns is the narratives that tend to surround it. It's very hinged to biomechanics and pathoanatomical quote unquote things that gives me a lot of pause with recommending that route to anyone. And then the, oftentimes when I've worked with people who have bought into McGill's methodology, they think they have to do those big three exercises or the world is going to end. 
And that really concerns me with appropriate utilization of people's time and what are we conditioning people to. Um, let's do one or two more. All right. Let's go with, is it unrealistic to expect resolution to persistent pain? I don't know that it's unrealistic, but uh, I would say having that as an end goal could be perfectly reasonable. But I think depending on how you're focused on the timeline of that goal is probably a wrong way of framing it. And if pain has been present for a really long time, then like expecting it to go away immediately is probably not the best way of looking at the situation. But it comes down to what we talked about earlier of like, can you do a little bit more and then a little bit more? And you'll hear people and, you know, I've talked with some of my patients, like I can still feel the radiculopathy down my leg. Like I could draw you a line of that dermatome, but it doesn't hurt. It's not pain. It's just there. And I think like it depends on what your perception of it is and whether you whether you see it as a sign of danger or if it's just something that's there, like a, a lot of chronic pain individuals will talk about like the, the symptoms are always there. It's just, what do you do to manage the symptoms? Yeah. And um, I think an important thing here is the distinction of expectations that we do want to see people expect things to get better, that you can, it can be a negative if the expectation is, Oh, this is just never going to get better. That needs to be a, a major talking point for the clinician then. Amato, were you going to say something? Yeah, and, you know, it's going to be individual to the person, but, you know, there, there is some evidence to say, like, that acceptance and commitment therapy can have an improvement in function and disability. So, again, not, like, ruling out the opportunity of, you know, expecting there to be some improvement in the pain experience itself, but that it, it can go beyond that and that you can make steps towards reclaiming your role and who you are as a self to make you a, uh, just the person who you want to be essentially moving forward. And that there is, that, that there is evidence to say that you can do that. And that despite the pain you can still like live well and be, uh, like an active social person. 100%. Absolutely. Well, I think on that note, this is a good stopping point. Hopefully we have provided some insight into uh, low back pain and how best we could deal with it based on the current evidence. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. We're all on social media. Uh, we have not forgotten about having Peter Stillwell on here. They are still coming on. He and his co-author on July 29th, we're going to record that podcast. So that will be out in the near future. Um, otherwise, if you need anything, you can find us completely free on barbellmedicine.com. Go to the forum tab, click on pain and rehab subforum. Derek, myself, Michael Amato, and Dr. Austin Baraki, we're all on there trying to answer your questions as best as we can. And uh, until next time, we'll talk to you later. Thanks.